Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome. want to go. Yes, go travel, go explore, go find a new city, go reconnect with friends, go have fun. That's why we created OnGo, the trusted rapid COVID-19 self-test. OnGo gives you accurate COVID test results and peace of mind in just minutes. So anywhere you go, you know. You'll know if you're COVID-19 free and you'll know you're protecting loved ones. OnGo is readily available at letsongo.com, Amazon, Walgreens, or Walmart.com. Use promo code ONGO15 for 15% off at letsongo.com today. It's that time of year again. Time to decide have you been naughty or have you been nice. Of course, you've been nice. Head to driveway.com now and upgrade your sleigh. When you buy from Driveway, there's no pressure or haggling. We offer our best price up front, online financing options, and a worry-free 7-day or 400-mile money-back guarantee. That's Driveway, an easy car buying experience that's delivered right to your, well, like the name says, driveway. Good morning, Bill Handel here. On a Wednesday morning, uh, December 8th, National Brownie Day. For those of you who are the big brownie fans. A lot going on today. Here are the top stories that we are covering. Uh, 17 years after being sentenced to die, Scott Peterson will be resentenced today to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I mean, so that's an easy one. And that's the 2002 killing of his pregnant wife and unborn son. And uh, other big news, Pfizer said that that booster shot of the vaccine uh, protects against the new Omicron variant. The booster shot does. That adds to your ability to f- stave off uh, the uh, uh, the virus. Uh, it, it's just preliminary data that's come out. It hasn't yet been peer-reviewed uh, or has been given to the feds. The FDA has been submitted to the FDA, and the advisory board hasn't met any of that. Now, let me tell you what's going on in Washington. Uh, Another story of polarization, and this one is absolutely crazy. You would think that the Republicans and the Democrats would get together just for the federal government to pay its bills. Not anything new, no new programs, just we want to pay our bills. We got to pay those landlords that we have leases with. For federal offices, we have to pay for the pencils that we use. And uh, the Republicans uh, said, uh, no, Democrats passed it. Oh, by the way, the Democrats passed this measure. And I want to talk about the measure in a minute. uh, 222 to 212. Every single Republican, except for Adam Kinzinger, who is more of a Democrat than he is a Republican. Boy, is he in trouble uh, with his seat. uh, Voted no. They are so anti-Democrat 
that they won't even pass or tried not to pass or wouldn't vote for the passage of uh, uh, the bill uh, that allows the government to borrow more money to pay the bills. And nothing changes. This is just everything's stable. Everything stays the same. Well, we'll figure out later all new programs, et cetera. Nope, not going to do it uh, because uh, we are just not interested in any of the other programs that the Democrats are pushing through. So uh, how is it possible? Well, it's a little bit uh, complicated. Uh, it has to go to the Senate, too, uh, where it's evenly divided. And here is 50-50, but uh, Kamala Harris uh, has uh, the tie-breaking vote pursuant to the Constitution. So the Treasury Department said it could breach the statutory limit uh, on the ability to finance the government's obligations without congressional action. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, by the way, if Congress doesn't vote it uh, in, well, you have a default. And that means the government doesn't pay its bills. And now we're going into another crazy-ass uh, period of time. So this measure uh, that is going to be passed, since the Republicans are against it for the most part, and it barely squeaked by the House, so what happens? Well, this bill would create a special pathway to be used exactly once, just once, for the Senate to raise the debt limit by whatever amount is uh, uh, is in fact agreed to uh, with a simple majority vote. In order to borrow the money, there has to be, in the Senate, 60 senators. And since, they're, since it's straight down party lines, all the Republicans voting no, all the Democrats voting yes, maybe Mnuchin, uh, maybe Cinema of Arizona would vote no because they're really conservative uh, senators. Uh, the point is, is that it's going right down, right down party lines. And this is crazy making because this is just to pay the rent. That's all this is. The government has to borrow money at the end of every year. Why? Because the government always runs a deficit, spends more money than it brings in. That would break any one of us. That would break a state. You know, California can't do that. California has to have a balanced budget constitutionally. It just has to have one. Well, the government, the federal government, uh, constitutionally can borrow all the money it wants. And it prints money. And so what we have now is the inability of the politicians to get together. And by the way, these deficits have been insane. During COVID, they ran into the trillions of dollars, uh, even during uh, Donald Trump's era. You know, there were no such thing as Republican deficit hawks. They disappeared. Remember how the Republicans always used to yell, you can't spend more money. Look at the Democrats. They're spending more money than ever, and uh, they're breaking us, and look how horrible they're socialists, uh, and we can't have deficit spending. Guess what? With Donald Trump's trillion-dollar deficit spending in one year before COVID hit, all of those Republican deficit hawks disappeared. They didn't exist. Why? Because of politics. So here you have, let's say you're a Republican. Let's say I'm a Republican. And I truly believe that we have to have a balanced budget. It is everything to me. It's one of my most important uh, points of my political life. Rand Paul, for example, right? And now you have President Trump 
who says we're going to spend more money than ever. Oh, I just shut up. I'm no longer. No, I'm not going to say anything against that. Where Rand Paul would religiously vote against any deficit bill. So it's going to happen. Uh, We're going to be able to pay the bills. And come January, uh, the fight starts all over again for the Biden social uh, program. The Democrats program of $1.75 trillion, uh, the safety net program. Now, uh, let's talk about the law jam, right? Let's talk about the ports. Great news. Uh, Here's what's happening. Uh, You've got 46 boats that are offshore now waiting at Long Beach in L.A., down from a peak of more than 80. Boy, is that a good sign? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, uh, in his first visit to uh, the port complex yesterday, uh, said this is a sign of progress. Actually, he was repeating what the executive director of the port, a guy by the name of Gene Soroka, says, look at this, half the ships. That is a sign of progress. Well, people are looking at the supply chain and are going, wait a minute. You know, the number of ships out there you can't dispute. But the total number of ships waiting hasn't gone down. Why? Because there's a new policy. Instead of waiting in port, you go out to sea and you wait. Which brings the number of ships that are waiting, whether in port or 150 miles out, uh, about the same. Now, the ships are being unloaded faster because the ships are now being fined. I think, what is it, $9,000 a day when uh, they don't unload. So the unloading is happening pretty quickly. But if you're talking about the entire supply chain, uh, no. Uh, Starting November 16th, uh, three weeks ago, uh, incoming ships had to wait out in the open ocean rather than close to shore. And that's 150 miles offshore as they wait for a slot. Uh, If you're going up and down the coast, uh, you're sitting 50 miles outside. So right now, there are about 50 container ships that are sitting out there, which raises the total of ships waiting to unload at the two ports at the highest level it has ever been. All right, so let's go in and start uh, talking about why. And there are a bunch of reasons because there's no easy answer here. First of all, the ports have handled record-setting cargo volumes over the last year. And keep in mind, the ports of Los Angeles and uh, uh, Long Beach are considered some of the worst ports in the world. Matter of fact, they are the worst ports in the world. Uh, And there's only two or three ports out there that are worse. And they're all in places like Yemen and places like uh, Uruguay, Uruguay, which is landlocked. They have better ports than we do. And so... You talk about the number of uh, or the amount of cargo volume coming in. And then you have warehouses, trucking companies, terminal operators uh, saying they're going to start running more night shifts, which would move more containers out. Uh, Well, the problem is they're not set up for it. Warehouse space is limited. So how do you add uh, containers to warehouses that are already full? That's a problem. Or those yards that keep the containers, they take them off the ship, they put them in these holding yards, and, you know, those are stacked up, a huge number of uh, these containers. So um, the Bush, the Biden administration could reexamine some of the tariffs on Chinese imports that the Trump administration put into place. Why? Because we need trucks. 
because there's a shortage of, well, a shortage of trucks and a real shortage of truck drivers. And uh, that I'm going to do later on. There's a whole story about truck drivers, too. You know that uh, truck chassis, which are made in China, we can't bring them in because of the tariffs. They're so expensive because of what uh, the Trump administration put tariffs in. And you can look look on both sides. A lot of people view President Trump as uh, having gonads because he was telling the Chinese, go screw yourself. We're not going to take what you are doing to us. But the problem is it hurts them and it hurts us. And we'll see who wins. Unfortunately, we need China more than China needs us. So that doesn't bode well. So you can't get a truck uh, chassis. And uh, you got the new queuing system. Uh, the ca- oh, Then there's the pollution issue about this new queuing system that people uh, that are out to shore. Uh, because what ends up happening when you have a slot and there's 150 miles out, now you, they're racing. The ships are racing. So what happens? They burn more fuel and you have a lot more pollution. And in comes the California Air Resources Board, uh, the Air Quality Planning Division. I mean, it's uh, absolutely crazy. Lots and lots of reasons. It's uh, it'll end. I mean, there's no question. We'll we'll come back to um, a, a reasonable accommodation. Problem is, we're not really going to uh, be world level until we get world level level ports. And that, even if the money is there and they're moving very quickly, the money may have already actually been voted in. But it takes years to redo a port and uh, build new ports. I mean, that's a long, long haul. So. Look at supply chain distribute uh, supply chain problems continuing on for a while. Uh, yeah. But the good news, it will end. I guarantee you a quick, wonderful mention about Postathon. Uh, we ended Postathon on Sunday and gave you final figures on Monday. Eight hundred and what is it? Eight hundred and seventy thousand dollars or something along those lines. Well, there have been a couple of new donations that have come in related to Postathon. And uh, these donations, oh, sorry, we're a little late, but we want to be part of Postathon. So, as of the new final Postathon uh, totals, $933,000. What? Yep. Almost a million dollars. Close to a million dollars. Oh, my God. And 115,000 pounds of pasta and sauce. (laughs) That's 57 tons of pasta and sauce. Yeah. Thank you, by the way. It's all about you folks doing that. Uh, because uh, I certainly don't donate $933,000 to Pastafine. And as far as pasta and sauce is concerned, I eat that stuff. So there isn't much left uh, to donate for my household. Okay. Congratulations. Fantastic. Huge. All right. Now I want to tell you about lizards and JFK uh, and deadly orgies. Uh, uh, Todd Robinson is a screenwriter uh, who wrote uh, a film... Uh, White Squall, 1996, goes back quite a while. And it's about a bunch of teenage boys and a captain of a ship. And the boys learn about life and loyalty while sailing uh, this ship, a 1911 ship, through a deadly storm. And the motto that they used, where we go one, we go all. And that uh, that was engraved on the ship's bell. And that was sort of the emotional heart of the story. So here we are, a quarter of a century later, and Robinson uh, is looking at those words that he coined and didn't know that would be the rallying cry of QAnon. 
And Robinson is going crazy. He goes, you know, QAnon completely misunderstood and abused the actual point of the film. Well, the actual point of the story is about how Hollywood plays a big role in QAnon and the QAnon philosophy and beliefs. Well, for example, where we go, the where we go mantra, uh, often shortened to WWG1WGA. You know, I've always wondered about these. I have no idea. I, I know two, actually, LOL and WTF. Uh, that's it. In terms of uh, otherwise, I spell out the words. So Hollywood is involved. So let me give you one of the QAnon crazy conspiracy. Evil, uh, evil lizard aliens disguised as humans. Uh, a cabal of elite pedophiles secretly controlling society. Uh, a lot of these are pulled from films and television shows that are obviously distorted, uh, but appropriated. And here's the problem. Usually if someone were going to talk about leaders or pedophiles, uh, that are our congressional and our national leaders. It's the crazy people out on the corner with a bullhorn and everybody ignores them and you just go, okay, fine. Well, uh, it's no longer, well, they're still crazy people, but now they have the internet and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers around the world who believe this stuff. Uh, Kenneth Johnson, uh, the author and director of uh, the 1983 miniseries V, remember that? And then the movie was pretty good. Uh, and yeah, he wrote another film and he books about a reptilian alien race that disguises itself as a human in a bid to over uh, to overtake Earth. Guess what? QAnon has that as part of his philosophy. And it goes around. I mean, crazy. Uh, where did this all start? Well, it started with Hollywood. And there's a British conspiracy theorist by the name of David Icke or Icke, And he's credited with spreading the idea of uh, the reptilian space invaders to the masses in a book that he wrote about a decade afterwards uh, or a decade ago. And in recent years, he has uh, become a key spreader of these conspiracy. For example, COVID is actually a herpetological takeover. COVID ha is created by man uh, to spread and take over the world. And by the way, you know who secret lizards are? Queen Elizabeth II and Bill Clinton are secret lizards in the world of QAnon or some QAnon. Uh, there is an extremist expert uh, by the name of Mia Bloom, a professor of communications at Georgia State University, and she wrote about this. She's studying about this. She wrote a book, Pastels and Pedophiles, and said, you know, this lizard idea isn't just a lizard idea. Uh, these are racist, uh, anti-Semitic tropes that are all through the QAnon, uh, the QAnon philosophy. And uh, anti-Semitism, which is not usually in Hollywood, Fighting anti-Semitism is, you know, the Nazi films. If you are a star in a film about the Holocaust, it's an automatic Academy Award win. Uh, that's it. Academy Award done. And uh, just that's why everybody vies for a Holocaust film. All the actors line up. In any case, uh, dating from at least the 1800s, the, these anti-Semitic tropes associate Jewish people with snakes and reptiles. And if you look at some of the Nazi literature coming out of Germany in the 1930s, there it is. The caricatures are snakes and reptiles. 
And so it's it, this idea of oppressive overlords, the Shylocks of the world, go way back to the 1800s. And so you have Hollywood that, in fact, is responsible for many of those ideas. Wouldn't have guessed it. So you, it's never the other way. It's not QAnon saying these lovely people are saving the earth. You'll never see QAnon pitching the biography of Mother Teresa. Now, they will say Mother Teresa's a pedophile and sells those kids in her orphanage. And the, the ones that she can't sell, she eats. That you'll hear. But if the Nazis thought that Jewish people were reptiles and whatever, uh-huh. and QAnon thinks Bill Clinton and Queen Elizabeth are, but they're not Jewish. Secretly, they are. Oh. Because if they're bad people, part. secretly they are. Oh, I got it. Okay. Right. and okay. uh, Or just straight out reptiles. You know, and the problem is, as, as ridiculous as that sounds, you know, it's this is valid. This is real. These are facts for a lot of these QAnon followers. I mean, it is beyond crazy. Welcome to the Internet. Oh, you talk about how wonderful the Internet is. There, there's a dark side to it. Here's a question I want to ask you, and that is, um, you would think uh, that uh, accidents would go down, right, after, uh, during and after the pandemic. Fewer people on the road. That's true. Do you think that happened? You'd be wrong. Last year, there were 38,680 deaths on U.S. roadways. That's the most since 2007, even though the pandemic had dramatically reduced driving, less driving, more fatalities, and serious accidents. Ken Kolish uh, with the National Safety Council said this was completely unprecedented. We didn't know what was happening. And so they're trying to figure out. They're looking at data, uh, which uh, frankly is not completed enough to say, hey, here it is. So they're looking at possibilities that just make sense. One, stress out Americans are releasing their anxieties on the roads. He guessed the fatal accidents would actually go down in 2021 when traffic returned wrong. The latest evidence suggests that after decades of safety gains, uh, the pandemic just made uh, drivers more reckless, more likely to speed, drink, or use drugs and leave their seatbelts unbuckled. That's a big one. And uh, have you noticed, and Jennifer, you, we both come in, you come in earlier than I do, uh, as does Tyler and Alex, but I, I have never seen so many people passing me by when I'm doing 70 or 75 miles an hour on the freeway. It's like I'm literally standing still. Yeah. And I, they're doing 100, 120 miles an hour. I think what happened is exactly what you're talking about is that a lot of us got really used to going really fast because you just got in this weird mindset where you got on the road. There was nobody around you, nobody to stop you, nobody to slow you down. And you just took off. And a lot of people haven't readjusted to, oh, my God, there are people back on the roads now. Yeah, And they're looking, a lot of people have not readjusted and they're all driving on the freeway that I drive on as as you well, as you drive. You know, experts are saying this really is a reflection of uh, the feelings of isolation, loneliness, depression. So what do you take out depression by driving 130 miles an hour with no seatbelts while uh, you're smoking some methamphetamine? Because all of that is up. Uh, Alcohol sales have soared during uh, the pandemic. Drug overdoses have set new records, 100,000 deaths uh, last year. Homicides, their biggest increase on record. 
And according to a professor of psychology at Temple University, uh, Frank Farley says, COVID-19 marks a sea change in psychology. And that's true. We, we've talked about the new normal and the changes. This pandemic, uh, when it's going to be over or it will become chronic, it'll be like the flu, it'll be like the co- uh, colds, it'll just be there always. And there'll be pills that you can take uh, to deal with it. Uh, but the point is that it's not just the medical side of it. It's the financial side of it. It's the social side of it. It's the way we work, the way we communicate. And we were on that path anyways. It's just turboed everything. And uh, a lot of it is not very good. Now, safety on the U.S. roadways have been improving for decades. Seatbelt laws, airbags, braking, stability control, safety features. And as a matter of fact, even the number of people on the roads increased. Uh, Fatalities fell. 55,000 in 1970, 36,000 in 2019. Then it started going up. Total miles driven went down by 13%. Deaths and fatalities went up 23%. And it's not just in cities, it's in rural areas, highways, back roads, day and night, weekdays, weekends, every age group between 16 and 65. It's across the board. There is no place. At 4 o'clock in the morning, you're going to see people dying at 8 o'clock in the morning. And here is one, and inevitably this always happens. I pointed out death rate for black folks are more than three times faster than the overall death rate. Again, why is that? I don't know. Also, vehicles involving one car rose disproportionately. Now, you've seen cars. I have seen cars, you know, usually the Lamborghinis, uh, which indicates that who's ever driving it has an extraordinarily small penis, and we'll get the Lamborghini to prove it. And, I mean, I have seen cars on that freeway drive 150 or 160 miles per hour. And then I always say, you know, he loses control. He's going into a uh, a power pole, and that car is going to be sliced in half. And that's happened. And that's happened. Yeah. Yep. Also, the uh, use of seatbelts is going down. That's interesting. To yeah. Me. How do you drive a car without a seatbelt? You can't just the beep, beep, beep. You kill yourself first by the time you've driven two miles. I would honestly like to know if that's in people who are driving older cars or newer cars, because that's it. You can't stop the beeping. No, you can't. But since the start of the pandemic, a larger share of these accident victims have been ejected from their vehicles. And of course, when you get ejected, what does that mean? You haven't been wearing your seatbelt. And it has to be older cars. Otherwise, you go nuts. Uh, Drug alcohol use, of course, has gone crazy. Uh, Opioid deaths have exploded. Drivers are more distracted. Um, uh, Here's one. Uh, States have loosened their driving laws. When I saw this, I shook my head and said, no, no, this can't be right. In Virginia, drivers can now go up to 85 miles per hour rather than 80. That's not the speed limit. Uh, That's before being charged with reckless driving. So it used to be if you went over 80, you got charged with reckless driving. Now they've increased it to 85 before you're charged with reckless driving. It goes the exact opposite the way you should. Also, if you in, in Maine... Uh, if you're committed to, uh, convicted of criminal negligence that results in a driving-related death, your license is now suspended one year instead of three. 
In a death? In a death. Okay, that makes zero sense. Yeah, you would think your license would be taken away forever. Yeah. Uh, in addition to all the criminal uh, allegations, all the criminal charges that you'd be facing. Completely crazy. I want to share with you a story of drugs. And uh, the reason I'm bringing up Hollywood and drugs is because uh, Hollywood is uh, always being a very famous place people pay attention to. I'm not talking Hollywood, the location. I'm talking about Hollywood, the industry. And so I'm going to use Hollywood, the industry, as the poster child of the drug problem. And the drug problem today, you can literally boil it down to one word, fentanyl. I mean, fentanyl is killing so many people. And uh, for example, uh, September 25th, Saturday night, LAPD officers go to the $16 million home of Richard Lovett, uh, president of CAA, to respond to a large party of high schoolers. Guess what? True uh, Two drug overdoses, fentanyl, where uh, the kids survive, thank goodness. And you have a few other high-profile Hollywood cases, actors, producers, in which uh, kids, for the most part, end up dying of fentanyl. And what they are, a window into this opioid epidemic uh, that has claimed, all right, last year, 100,000 lives. We've never had 100,000 people die of drug overdoses. I mean, that is crazy. Uh, you put car crashes and gun fatalities together, that doesn't reach 100,000. And since 2015, we're talking seven years ago, the number of deaths have doubled. And fentanyl is actually responsible for most of this. Now, uh, the reason I bring up Hollywood is uh, cocaine has long been used. It is the drug of choice. Also was the drug of choice among lawyers when I was practicing law. That's not to say that I engaged in cocaine use. Uh, the reason I know so much about it is I was studying it on a sociological level. I just want to make that very clear. Right, Jennifer? I don't believe you for a second. Okay. So uh, in uh, here's what's happening in Hollywood and even cocaine. As you buy cocaine, obviously you're not buying it from a drugstore. You're buying it from a dealer, which, uh, you know, all of us did uh, back in the 80s, uh, early 80s. Uh, the problem is today... Fentanyl, which didn't exist then, at least didn't exist in, uh, in, in uh, American drugs. Fentanyl is used to cut the cocaine to add a high to it. And what ends up happening when I talk about cutting uh, the cocaine or any drug or heroin, you add filler to it. You buy it and then uh, you then add filler to it and that's, it becomes less potent, but you sell it. And if it's pure drugs, pure cocaine, pure heroin, uh, you can cut it a lot. You can add filler a lot. Otherwise, uh, people die. Pure pure heroin will kill you. It's uh, just one of those things, and it doesn't take very much. With fentanyl, it takes nothing to kill you. I am talking about literally two milligrams of fentanyl can kill you. Uh, the L.A. County coroner had 420 fentanyl-related death cases in 2019. That's L.A. County. That was 2019. 420. Now we go forward a year to 2020. It's more than a thousand fentanyl related cases. And the problem is uh, fentanyl is laced, uh, is laced in everything now. And there's two kinds of people who uh, actually use fentanyl and use it with other drugs. 
In other words, take drugs laced with fentanyl because it's a super high. It's a hundred times more powerful than heroin. You can become addicted to fentanyl. Just have to be really careful as to how much you take. And by the way, you can't be really careful because you're buying this stuff on the street. And there are two kinds of purchases. One from a drug dealer who doesn't know that fentanyl is uh, part of uh, the base, heroin, uh, cocaine, whatever. And the other kind who purposely put in fentanyl because you can truly cut, uh, use less drugs and just add a touch of fentanyl and the high is as strong or higher. And it is just an amazingly huge problem. Uh, Fentanyl uh, actually does uh, much like heroin does, but just you can uh, literally increase that by 50-fold. When uh, fentanyl was first uh, encountered by cops uh, about a half a decade ago, and at that time its price ran $200 to $300 per gram. Now it's $100 to $150 per gram, which goes to show you how much is being brought in. It's supply and demand. Cocaine today sells for $20 to $80 a gram. Uh, in the early 80s, when I knew people that were using cocaine. You knew people. I knew people. Okay. Uh, I, I, uh, there's a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who is a user of cocaine. Got it. Uh, it was $100 to $120 a gram. And that was, what, how many years ago? That's uh, 20, 40 years ago. It was a hundred dollars or hundred and ten dollars, and that's in nineteen eighties dollars. Today it's twenty to eighty dollars per gram. The reason I bring that up is because look how cheap drugs are relative to what they were forty, fifty years ago. Far more potent than they ever were. Uh, the use of opiates. Well, you had uh, the Sackler family uh, and Purdue Pharmacy just uh, come up with a twelve billion dollar settlement because they were pushing opiates so hard and people were just dying. And those were legitimate opiates. I mean, I'm talking about pharmaceutical grade opiates that were being prescribed by doctors. Now you have the garbage out on the street because you can't get a doctor uh, prescription anymore. And guess what? You have pills that look exactly like the pharmaceutical pills. They're made with the same pill making machine. That's what people buy and then create their opiates, even with the stamp on it. You know how medication has uh, a stamping device that puts in the name of the drug or puts in a cross or puts in some kind of a logo uh, icon on the drug so you can recognize it, even to that point. And you just don't know. So uh, the answer is, well, a quick answer is, if you have a stash from pre-2020, you're probably safe. Use that. Anything after 2020, you're gambling big time. It is time for Handle in the House Whisper. Dean Sharp, Saturdays 6 to 8 a.m., Sundays 9 a.m. to 11. And uh, his social address, his social is at home with Dean. Morning, Dean. Morning, Bill. Hey, there you go. I'm still looking. I took my Hanukkah bush into my office, by the way, and I want to thank you for that. Well done. Uh, yeah, it's just spectacular. Uh, I want to talk about uh, fireplaces because you suggested this. Uh, you always send in saying, let's talk about this. I go, fine. Why not? And uh, fireplaces, not fire uh, fire detection uh, devices or you know, 
making your house fireproof. We've done that a few times. Uh, yeah, fun the, stuff. Yeah, uh, fireplaces. And fireplaces, boy, have they changed. And uh, it's you, no longer do we have wood-burning fireplaces. I mean, I built the Persian Palace 20 years ago, and my fireplace, I have two fireplaces in the house. Uh, both of them are wood-burning. I mean, I am gas, but I can burn wood. Right. Those days are gone. There's they, a... They really, they really are. And in California, for sure. Now, you can still build and buy uh, wood-burning fireplaces in other states across the U.S., but in California, and, and here's the rumor, the big rumor is that it won't be long before most states are following California along this path because of, uh, you know, pollution, because of uh, global warming, because of uh, fire uh, dangers uh, and the like. But for some time now, since actually 2008 and then 2011, uh, buying and installing a wood-burning fireplace or even a gas fireplace capable of doing wood. That's what I uh, Not going to happen in California and not anymore. So now we have to have alternatives and it runs all the way for literally the most, re well, it, 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 the modern fireplaces that are more of a architectural feature than they are fireplaces all the way to, you've been to Disneyland, Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean. And the whole place is on fire, that last uh, piece of the ride. And it's cellophane that's moving around, and it's lit. And right. uh, there you go. How's that for a fire? Looks well, you know what? I mean, for a long time, people have enjoyed that ambiance. Uh, so the question, though, when you get to that kind of stuff, uh, a simulated fire, is uh, unlike, you know, a 10-minute ride that you move through relatively quickly. If you're going to have one of those in your living room, uh, this is where electric fireplaces really fall short. Uh, <clears throat> you have one in your living room. You know, you're going to be sitting in front of it for some time. You're going to be staring at it for some time. And, you know, that is when the prop value of that kind of fakery uh, really kind of falls short. Because, you know, after about three minutes, you're like, mm, yeah, this is not a fire and I'm not really being uh, entertained. Yeah, it's... A fire uh, that is being, well, it's an ersatz fire. It pretends to be a fire, and it does it visually, and there's no heat, and it's badly done, and it looks like crap. And all. I, I love doing those, saying this is just a piece of garbage. <laughs> you have a few of those I, in your house, by the way? Uh, no, I have zero of those oh, in my house. okay, just Zero wondering. of them. Zero of them oh, okay. in my house. Uh, you know, I have a, you know, we, well, we had an older home. Now, the, the, one of the things that everybody needs to know, if you have an older home, that came with, you know, a wood burning or gas burning fire, you know, like you guys at the Persian Palace. Uh, you get to keep that. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, California has not outlawed uh, your ability to burn wood or have open no. hearth gas logs in your fireplace. It's new construction and remodels. That's what doesn't get it. And if you take your existing one away, you don't get it back. Now, they still allow, back to my fireplace, because that's uh, what I'm relating to. And as I said, there's a gas line through it, and I actually have the fake logs, uh, which look great, by the way. Uh, they are very realistic-looking uh, uh, logs. Uh, I am allowed to burn wood in that fireplace. I thought wood burning, uh, the fireplace may be there, but isn't it illegal to burn wood in those fireplaces? Nope, not at all. It oh. is not illegal. You have uh, that is grandfathered in to uh, your fireplace if it's capable of burning out. But with one exception, the AQMD uh, here in Southern California, the South Coast uh, AQMD does in between November and February, 
uh, release certain days because of, and it's usually, oddly enough, when it's cold and misty, uh, when air particle uh, pollution in the city or in the basin is high enough that they want no burn days. And if you burn wood on a no burn day, you could be fined up to, you know, 500 bucks. By the way, yesterday and Monday were no burn days. I haven't checked today to see if they were, but I know that yesterday and Monday were no burn days. And the uh, the question is, well, how do you know? You go to aqmd.gov, you put in your zip code. So it's aqmd.gov, you put in your zip code, you find out where your fireplace stands on any given day. Uh, no burn days, though, fall primarily between November and February, with a few happening during the Santa Ana's late in the summer. I mean, realistically, uh, how are they going to enforce that unless your neighbor is a rat? It's all about that. It's really it's really all about your neighbor tattling on you because, you know, there are no AQMD uh, police choppers, uh, you know, f- flying around Southern California looking for plumes of uh, fireplace smoke. Uh, we're talking about fireplaces, and we went through uh, wood burning, not wood burning, uh, grandfathering in old wood burning fireplaces. Let's talk about the newer fireplaces that people come, uh, can come in, and it's a whole new world in fireplaces. It really is. And now let me say these two things real quick before we get into these, because some of them can you know, present a little bit of sticker shock to some people. I just want to be clear on a couple of things. As a guy who's been Building here in Southern California for, you know, uh, we're pushing now towards 40 years, unfortunately. Uh, I can tell you this. uh, There are no fireplaces on the market these days. Zero fireplaces that are more expensive than building a traditional masonry fireplace to your house. So you can at least kind of take that as a consolation. Number two. Uh, a lot of people just shrug and say, well, you know, screw it. Why do we why do we need fireplaces anyway? Well, it's not a matter of need, but I will tell you this. Humans have had this long relationship with fire, like, you know, 400,000 years we've been making fire. It is now scientifically programmed into our DNA that open flame, uh, specifically flame at 1800 degrees Kelvin. That is not a temperature of you know heat temperature. That's color temperature. Uh, it's the temperature of candlelight, of, of an open fire. It relaxes our minds and lowers our blood pressure. It is a scientific fact. Study after study after study have done this. And so that is why fire is so mesmerizing to us. And it's why I try my best to get clients to build them into homes. So with that as a given, the new style of fireplaces that are out are numerous and uh, very, very interesting. Now, if you want to go with a gas real a flame fireplace in Southern California, you have to go with what's called a direct vent fireplace. These are completely sealed units. There's glass across the front. Uh, so, and a lot of people think uh, myths associated with this, that as a result, they don't actually heat the room and you don't actually get any good flames. And that's not true at all. In fact, direct vent fireplaces heat rooms better than traditional fireplaces. About 80% of the heat on a traditional chimney Uh, goes right up the chimney, in a traditional fireplace, goes right up the chimney. Uh, About 80% of the heat of a direct vent fireplace comes out into the room. And uh, so direct vent fireplaces are actually better at heating rooms. And when they first came out, it was, yeah, not great. But now, now uh, there is a huge selection of them, and a lot of them look really great. And the thing that I love, whether you go traditional with a traditional-looking firebox or a long linear firebox. Yeah, for those a are those are home. very hot right now, aren't those they? Those are outstanding. Yeah, they're hugely hot and and just outstanding artistic pieces. 
regardless of uh, which one you're going for, you need to know this about a direct vent fireplace. Here's one of the huge advantages. No chimney. No chimney at all. These are kind of appliances like your water heater or your dryer. There's a vent that's usually about four inches in diameter. They could be vented out the back, vented out a sidewall, vented up, where it vented inside a wall up until you find a place to get out of the house. So the point is no huge chimney, no uh, very, very few space limitations, and and you can do just all sorts of great configurations with them. Yeah, on a color, uh, you can do the different rocks at the bottom. That's very big. Uh, that uh, light up, and it's just, uh, it, it really is extraordinary. I had a hard time accepting those, uh, Dean. I, I have to be honest, uh, for a very long time until uh, I caught what you just said. Don't look at it as a fireplace. Look at it as an architectural element that happens to use fire. Exactly, exactly the case. You know, just change with it. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, that open flame still has the exact same psychological and emotional effect on us as the traditional fireplace, which has been admittedly outmoded. I mean, fireplaces were put in homes in order to heat rooms, and we don't do that anymore. And we haven't done it for over a century. Yeah, in order to cook, too, back in the day. Yes. All right. Thanks, yeah. Dean. Uh, once again, uh, always great stuff. We will uh, hear you Saturday from 6 to 8 a.m. and Sunday from 9 a.m. to 11 and, of course, at home with Dean, uh, Instagram, Twitter, I mean, all the social platforms. Dean, you have a good one. We'll catch you on the weekend. Thank you, Bill. All right, take care. Wow, it's done. We're over. We're finished. This is Bill Handel and the Morning Crew, KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, Randy, what you doing? Oh, hey, Dave. I'm just making a list of things that make me feel really, really good. Wearing Bombas socks. Trust me, that's number one on my list. Bomba socks feel so good because we use the smartest design and best materials, making them the most comfortable socks ever. Plus, because socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters, we donate a pair for every pair purchased, and that feels pretty good too. To shop Bombas or learn more about how your purchase supports those experiencing homelessness, go to bombas.com slash comfy and get 20% off your first purchase. It's that time of year again. Time to decide have you been naughty or have you been nice. Of course, you've been nice. Head to driveway.com now and upgrade your sleigh. When you buy from Driveway, there's no pressure or haggling. We offer our best price up front, online financing options, and a worry-free 7-day or 400-mile money-back guarantee. That's Driveway, an easy car buying experience that's delivered right to your, well, like the name says, Driveway. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Locked in for much of 2020, many people turned to music to help them through. Music streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Play saw a 20% increase in listenership on the previous year. And in total, streaming accounted for more than 80% of all music consumption. 
Huge stars like Bob Dylan and Neil Young jumped on the trend, selling their back catalogues for millions. But a report from MPs found that many other musicians aren't actually seeing the financial benefits. There was a point when being a songwriter meant you could earn a living from it, and being a record producer meant you could earn a living from it, and being a studio engineer meant you could earn a living from it. But the, the, the value chain's gone. Streaming a song on Spotify, for example, has an average value of around 0.004 of a penny, 0.004, which goes to the label or the song's rights holders. An artist might receive about a fifth of that, meaning roughly 80 pence earned per thousand streams. In April last year, more than 150 artists, including stars like Sir Paul McCartney, Kate Bush and Sting, signed a letter asking the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, for reforms. By October 2020, the Select Committee for the Department for Culture, Media and Sport gathered evidence as part of an inquiry looking into the economics of music streaming. But what do musicians want to see changed? Can the inquiry's recommendations be implemented? And what benefit has the streaming model brought to the industry? Hello and welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headline. In July 2021, after reviewing more than 300 pieces of evidence, MPs published their recommendations, which included more equitable remuneration for streaming income and songs to get a bigger share of streaming royalties. While the UK government started to assess what it could put into action, the MP Kevin Brennan sponsored a private member's bill. That's a public bill introduced by non-government ministers. My bill today, Madam Deputy Speaker, largely endeavours to bring into law measures that were proposed in the DCMS Select Committee report uh, of earlier this year. The report, which is uh, titled The Economics of Music Streaming, was unanimously agreed, cross-party, after many, many months of hearings with witnesses from all parts of the music industry. That bill, which received its second reading in Parliament on December the 3rd, proposed to introduce some of the report's recommendations as legislation. The Broken Record campaign led calls to regulate the music industry. My name's Tom Gray. Um, people might remember my band Gomez in the late 90s. We won the Mercury Prize in 1998. Then I started advocating for musicians and I became a director of PRS for Music, who are a collection society for songwriters and composers. Tell us more then. The Broken Record campaign, you'd say there is a problem and an issue with sustainability. Just tease those out for us, those different strands. Well, you know, the problem we have is that people look at the music business and they go... It's fine for musicians. They can just make money from live, right? It doesn't matter that they can't make money from recorded music anymore. But guess what? Look, these things come along like a global pandemic and suddenly 90% of our income disappears. And what used to be a viable business, i.e. the recorded music business, isn't anymore. You know, unless you're in a very, very tiny percentage of the recording community, you cannot have anything like a sustainable, even lower middle class or maybe even livable income from streaming. It just doesn't produce enough income. So there's a fundamental problem. So, I mean, is it pretty simple what you want? You want to be paid more per download? It isn't that simple. I just want having a career in music to be possible. I want it to be sustainable and I want to do whatever's possible to get there. 
And I don't really care how we get there, whether it's through legislation or through the streaming platforms changing their model somewhat or, you know, it, all of these all of these things are totally possible and movable and negotiable. There's a lot of problems. There's sort of layers of problems, if you will. You know, at the base level, there's the standard record contract is still the way that artists and labels work together. That dates from the 20th century. That was when these labels were massive manufacturing distribution companies with huge costs right then they had a and r men living in every city of the you know and all of this they don't have any of that anymore at some point there should have been a rebalancing and it's a far more serious rebalancing than what we've seen but that hasn't occurred right artists are paid a bit more than they used to be right that's that's true but not much <laughs> and look if you're an aggregator if you're this, these people who own thousands and thousands and millions of rights how is it right that you keep 80 percent of the cash across the entire thing and the individual artist only gets to keep 20 percent of their tiny little bit now if you move on to the streaming platforms that's a whole other problem right you know spotify have been around since 2008 and they've never changed the price and then when you take into account the fact that Actually, as it's burgeoned and it's grown, those same companies are making less money from every new user, right? So it used to be about seven quid they made from every person who signed up to Spotify. Now it's about three or four quid. The actual money that they're getting per user is half what it used to be. And so if, if everyone's listening to the same amount of music, the per stream rate keeps going down. It's a classic market supply demand um, kind of workers and bosses too and you talked about that rebalancing and when you think then you know through history about when the capitalists clash with the workers well the power that the workers always had the only power they had was to withdraw their labor and so you know what I'm getting with here uh, you're such a diverse bunch you know the the talent the suppliers of the content but you all have to get together don't you well here's the problem it doesn't matter because we're all contracted. So our work is contracted to the labels. So we have no right to take our work off of the platforms. You know, the major labels who control more than 70% of the global music market and maybe as much as 90% of streaming, they were shareholders in Spotify. I think that's out of whack. And it, it strikes me that addressing it isn't that that kind of a militant position you know in, in many ways yes it is it is akin to workers versus the uh, the bosses but actually what we are is really inventors it's 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 all intellectual property we invented it the law around it is actually copyright law it isn't employment law and there's nothing to say that you can't change copyright law so that so that the balance of power is different so tell me where you've got with that then, if that's, you know, the, the real point of attack. How far along that road has your campaign got? For the first thing that happened was we got a DCM, DCMS Select Committee uh, inquiry into the economics of streaming. That produced an incredibly bruising report for the record industry. It called for a complete re reset of the music industry. The, the government responded to that. They've asked the Competitions and Markets Authority to look at the market and produce a study, which is obviously huge. And it's something that we'd asked for in a letter that we wrote to the prime minister, which, you know, Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones and everybody signed. That was a pretty huge thing. And they locked into that process. And then Kevin Brennan had a private members bill read in Parliament, which was sort of a, you know, an attempt to show them what a model piece of legislation would look like. <laughs> the danger of us not doing anything about this, the danger of us not thinking about the sort of the baseline, the, the ecosystem 
is that you eventually lose it. You know, it, it's interesting listening to, to the MPs talking in Parliament. A lot of them kept going on about, well, actually, you know, and these people thought they were making the argument on behalf of the major labels. They were like, well, actually, you know, the British music is, is actually shrinking on a global scale. And the Korean market, look at the Korean market. Amazing. What's happening in Korea? K-pop. Explosive. Well, let me tell you what happened to K-pop. The Korean government decided in 2008 to massively redirect investment into popular music. And the Hallyu, the Korean, the, the, the Korean wave, followed. Because what they did was they went, music has this extraordinary soft power in the world. Korea needs to have a global voice. Let's do it through music. And they did it. And, and it's taken them 13 years. And now we're all listening to K-pop. Now, the, the lesson there is, don't leave music in the hands of the major labels, foreign multinationals in the UK. Take that money and stick it back into the UK system. There's lots of it. We're incredibly talented. We've got all of the infrastructure. And if you just turn the taps on, we could, you know, rule everything. When the streaming giants were hauled before the committee looking into this in February, they told MPs there is a difficult balance to be struck. Horacio Gutierrez, Head of Global Affairs and Chief Legal Officer at Spotify. I would make two points. Number one, not every music streaming company is is, uh, fortunate enough to have Apple's economics. So uh, for some of us, we're struggling to to turn a profit. The balance that we have to strike is one in which music doesn't become unaffordable to consumers. And we are in fact pushing them back into online piracy uh, scenarios. And obviously the economics of every market are different. So I think what you will see over time is that the menu of options that are available to users is going to be more robust. There'll be higher price um, uh, what we call SKUs or, or uh, offerings for, uh, for users and on the whole prices uh, will rise. But we have to do that also being sensitive from uh, uh, for the, the perspective of, of users because at the end of the day, the, the role that we play is to be the bridge between artists and users. And we have to be able to find demand, people willing to pay for the music for everyone in the system to benefit for the whole pie to continue to grow. Haley Bosher is an intellectual property law expert. What are the, the legal grounds that the musicians are fighting on? You know, what can the government do to change the law in their favour to make the big um, music providers and copyright holders pay them more money? So the way that it works is that a song has copyright, actually has more than one copyright and the original owner is the creator and often the way that the music industry works is that those musicians and performers will license those copyrights to the publishers and the record labels who then distribute the music and the record label will make a deal with the platforms such as Spotify and Spotify pay money to the label to get their access to their catalogue and that's how we get access to the music that we can listen to on our music streaming platforms. But everything in copyright is governed by contracts and if you think about the kind of dynamics here you've got maybe an unknown musician starting out signing their first record deal and they do hire a lawyer, they have to hire a lawyer to review their contract but 
because of industry standards, very few things are negotiated. And even if they are, they don't change very much. So the contracts determine how much they get paid, when they get paid, what they get paid for. And often the record labels will give an upfront payment to the artist to go into the studio, for example, and, you know, make the recording and, and make the album or whatever it is. And then they recoup the payments from the royalties that selling the music makes from the artist share. So there are a lot of artists who are unrecouped. So they're still paying off their debt, which means when their songs get played, they don't receive any royalties. But there is this other thing called equitable remuneration, which when the song is played on the radio, the artist receives a royalty payment that goes around the record label. So it doesn't go into their unrecouped debt. And that's that's collected by a collecting society and distributed that way. So what they're asking for in this new bill is a replica of that to apply to streaming because it currently doesn't. So at the minute, when the song is played on the radio, they receive a royalty payment. But when it's played through a streaming platform like Spotify, it's not. So that's the big difference. But just back to that point you made you know, about the initial contract signed perhaps by a young struggling up-and-coming singer-songwriter or, or band. I mean, that's been going on for time immemorial, hasn't it? You know, we hear about bands that become incredibly successful then going back and fighting these long legal battles about the early contracts that they signed that paid them very little. Because of the nature of the change in the way that we consume music and the way that music makes money, there hasn't been necessarily a fair adjustment with how artists and performers receive a fair share of that so being able to go back and renegotiate your contract would give them a little bit more power to get a fairer deal when the thing has taken off I mean the record labels would argue that they take the risk right so they invest in lots of artists and some of them are successful and some of them are not and so when they get the successful artists it pays for all the unsuccessful ones so that's you know, it makes sense why they would not want to do that. But at the same time, you're starting off on the back foot when you're signing the contract. And um, the contracts last for a very long time. And you can be stuck. I mean, there are people on what we call legacy contracts, which were written before streaming services even existed. And so they also receive nothing. And that would be another really good example of when it would seem reasonable to go back and change and update the contract. Okay, well, give us the ABC now of the legislative process. There has been an inquiry by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Talk us through its recommendations and what shape any legislation that flows from that might look like. So in the select committee recommendations, they put forward a number of different things that they thought that the government should do, including in launching a competition market authority market study, because they were worried about what they call the oligopoly status of the record labels. And they also thought that the advertising standards agency should get involved with the way that playlist curators work. But they also suggested, which is the thing that led to the bill, that the government should legislate and introduce new rules or amend current rules in copyright law to rebalance both the power and redistribute some of the wealth. Because what seems to be happening is the record labels are making an incredible amount of money from music streaming and the artists and the performers are not. So they wanted to try to readjust that. So some of the things that the inquiry recommended, such as introducing equitable remuneration for streaming, to look at 
rights revocation so that means that after 20 years if according to the recommendations they suggested 20 years the artist or performer should be able to get their rights back which they've licensed or assigned to the record label in order to go and exploit their uh, music elsewhere if it's not making money through their current contract so they made quite a few different recommendations in terms of what they thought should happen there was also a whole load of stuff about transparency because Definitely one of the issues around the power imbalance is that everything is behind closed doors. So we don't know how much Spotify pay the record labels. So then how can you know if you're getting a fair share of that? How can you renegotiate your contract when you don't know how much the product made in the first place? So what happened after that was that the government did a response paper. So in the response, they said that they acknowledged the issues that were raised by the streaming inquiry. They did two things. They said that they are going to set up these kind of industry groups because really they're a conservative government. It's unsurprising that they really want the industry to try to figure out some of this stuff themselves rather than legislate. They set up these industry groups to try and figure out non-legal solutions. And also they commissioned further research because they said that there were opposing arguments. So some people don't necessarily think that the things that we've just discussed will work or will be beneficial for everyone in the industry. Coming up, how has streaming revolutionised the music industry? Chris Carey, um, CEO of Media Insight Consulting, uh, but with a background working for record labels, songwriters and in the live music industry too. How has it changed the industry, the streamers? Yeah, so I think streaming has dramatically transformed how music is listened to, arguably how music is made and the transactional nature of music itself. If you think back to be it vinyl, be it CDs, even downloads, you would pay up front for all your future listening. And in that one moment, there's a large transaction takes place Artist gets paid, record label gets paid, publisher gets paid, and they get paid in one go early for your anticipated consumption. With streaming now, you get a pay-as-you-go model, so the more you're listened to, the more you get paid, but you miss out on that cash flow benefit of upfront, and it changes the investment situation, it changes the cash flow situation, and then when you look at the listening experience, it arguably changes what people listen to, and therefore what artists choose to write as well. So, um, dramatic change. Fundamental transformation, then, you're describing there. And we're looking at it uh, in the main from the point of view of the the artists. And as you know, many, many, many of them say that uh, part of that fundamental change, well, the big part from their point of view, is that they get paid less, if at all, in some cases. Uh, Yes. So obviously many artists are on contracts that didn't foresee streaming or have got clauses that look at future unknown sources of income being paid at a discounted rate sometimes. Um, So there's some artists who are receiving less than might be reasonable based on the contract they signed long before streaming was a consideration. You also have to understand how artists become signed to labels in the first place. So I might give you £100,000 to record an album and I might give you 20% of the royalty. Only once your 20% has repaid the full 100000 do you then start receiving income. So artists who might have had historic deals and still owe money from that deal would not see income from streaming until they have fully recouped that advance payment that was given to them. And so you might see a lot of activity, but actually the value of that activity is still going to the record labels and not necessarily being passed on to the artists because of the position they are in their contract. 
It's interesting what you're saying about this kind of overlap then between the old style contracts, the arrival of the streamers and the different model then. So what are the newer artists? What kind of contracts, what shape do they look like and how do they make sure that they're getting as much benefit as they possibly can from their efforts? People are looking now at profit share models. So the, the model I've described is still very prominent, it's still available. But much of the industry now looks also at profit share. So rather than I give you 100, you repay 100, and then you can start earning. Actually, we invest 100 between your share and my share. We recover back to a baseline of 100, so repay the debt. And then we both start earning from that point, rather than the old world where your 20% share had to repay the full 100K. So that's one. And then part of the debate at the moment, this debate around whether streaming should just be paid 50-50 to the artist, 50-50 to the label without touching the recoupment consideration. So regardless of where you are in your contract, whether or not you should just be paid directly. OK, I want to throw in here then, Chris, then, you know, the broken record campaign. I know you're well, well aware of it and engaged with it. Am I discerning here that you think that they might be really barking up the wrong tree or do you, do you agree with their aims? I mean, I think they've done a superb job of drawing attention to some of the injustices of the modern music industry. The fact that we've heard in Parliament from songwriters who can't make a living, who are driving Ubers at the moment, who've, hit, who've written hit songs, but can't then sustain themselves from that. And from artists as well, who just are not being looked after or not being kind of facilitated. I think it's drawn a huge amount of good attention to arguably a broken cash flow within the recorded music industry and really be within the streaming environment overall. So as you know, I mean, flowing from that, the uh, the government uh, has been looking in detail at this. There's a private member's bill. It's uh, been examined. There's been an inquiry into it all. What do you think it should do? I mean, first and foremost, the government says, well, this is for the music industry to sort out. But if it doesn't, then perhaps legislation could happen. Well, yeah. And I think, broadly speaking, you would always prefer regulation from inside the industry rather than imposed, partly just for the depth of understanding, partly for the time it takes to get a law passed, and partly for keeping that law relevant and up to date as time goes on. So much better to find a self-regulatory solution from the industry. And I think that the new style of deals has the potential to make things more even more fair um, across the industry. Something we don't talk about as much as I might like, is actually increasing the amount of money that flows in from streaming. At the moment, we've got a magic number pricing where it's 10 euro, 10 dollar, 10 pounds, depending which currency you're in, regardless actually of willingness to pay in the market. Whereas you look at someone like Tidal, who've come in with a much higher price point for 20 euro, 20 dollar, 20 pounds, and actually are trying to increase the amount of money that flows into the industry. How much of that money stays with the streaming service is one debate, but they pay out roughly 70% of what they're receiving, which doesn't feel too unreasonable. And then it's about making sure that money reaches people in a timely manner and in a manner that's fair. And that's really where the campaign has drawn a lot of attention. And hasn't, you know, the the global lockdowns we've seen over the last couple of years, haven't they really, really drawn attention to this? Because part of what you say there and, you know, hear it from the from the musicians themselves is they've been told, OK, well, you know, you can perform live and it's between you and the promoter and the and the venue uh, about how much money you get and uh, you'll be fine. But of course, they haven't been able to do that for, for quite a long time now. Well, absolutely. And it does bring it into fairly sharp contrast. So you could always argue recorded music is your promotion for your live show. but that's not um, fitting for all kinds of artists. Some artists don't like to perform live. Others doesn't work as well live. And actually, recorded music should have a value. It's not just promo. It should be much more than that. So where does this leave the music industry? 
Although December's bill reading in Parliament didn't get voted through, the government has commissioned further research into the economics, contracts and streaming. The results of that should come sometime in 2022. My thanks to Tom Gray, Hayley Bosher, Chris Carey and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily Podcast, hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan. This edition was produced by Soila Aparicio, along with Alice Bowen and Aisha Rahman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find plenty more like it where you found this one, and we'd love a review while you're there. Hello, sorry it's so late. We're recording a trailer for our piece. Is there any any chance you could dial in and do it with us? You just say, I'm Stevie. Okay, yeah, dial in now. Hi, I'm Katie. I'm Claire. And I'm Stevie. And while you're here, can we recommend Backstage to you? It's the entertainment podcast from Sky News. Is it just me that thinks this is like the best news in entertainment for ages? I get it, but I don't get it. It's lots of gossiping. Drama. Showbiz interviews. I made him cry. And some insider information from across the pond. I saw the first episode already. Find us wherever you like to listen to podcasts or on the Sky News app. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Inspiring interviews with today's top landlords. This is the Rental Income Podcast. And now, Dan Lane. Michael, it sounds like you're really doing things right with your rentals. You have very little turnover. Your rentals are very profitable. You don't have a lot of maintenance requests. What are you doing? What would you say is your secret to to your rental portfolio? Yeah, I think for us, the, the thing... The number one thing that we found is if we invest upfront in the rental, we make the properties extremely nice. We we do all the little extra detail things that provides us with a much better pool of applicants and uh, honestly a higher rental rate because we're we're offering sort of a a higher end product, if you will. That tenants seem to really like. We're all buying rental properties to make money, but if you're constantly dealing with repairs and vacancies and other expenses, it can be very difficult to actually turn a profit on a rental property. I wanted to bring Michael on the show today because he's really doing things right with his rentals. All of his rentals are very passive. They don't take much time for him to manage at all. And they're all very profitable. His rentals all cash flow great. So on the show today, we're going to see if we can figure out exactly what Michael's doing with his portfolio. We'll take a look at one of his deals and go over all of his numbers. Before we get into the show, I just want to point out that Michael is a big fan of the podcast. He's been a longtime listener and his company, Ask Rick, has been a longtime sponsor of the podcast but Michael is not paying to be here today. Ask Rick is not sponsoring today's show. We're not here to talk about Ask Rick. We're here to talk about Michael's rentals. So 
Let's take a really quick break. We'll thank our sponsors. We'll come right back and we'll talk to Michael McConnell. There is a ton of paperwork involved when you're getting a mortgage on a rental property. Lenders are going to want to see two years of tax returns, pay stubs, bank statements. I mean, it's a lot of work and a huge hassle. Shaylee Ridge from Ridge Lending Group has a brand new loan program where she doesn't care about any of that. She actually doesn't need any paperwork from you at all. She's just going to look at the deal. The most important thing she wants to see is, does it make sense? Is the property going to cash flow? If it does, she'll give you a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Now, the rates are going to be a little bit higher than a traditional full dock loan, but it's still a great deal, somewhere between 3.9 and 5%. She can close quickly, and there's no hassle. She can even do a cash-out refi with this program. If you want to learn more, just reach out to Chaley at RidgeLendingGroup.com. That's R-I-D-G-E LendingGroup.com, NMLS42056. You may have noticed that many internet service providers are logging your online activity, and then they turn around and they sell your data to big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent my ISP from seeing my online activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app for your computer or your smartphone. The way it works is that it encrypts your data and then it tunnels it back through their secure server so that your ISP or really anyone else can't see what you're doing. I have it on my phone. It just kind of runs in the background. It doesn't slow my internet down. I actually forget that it's on half the time, but I love knowing that my internet data is staying private. So stop handing your personal data to your ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN that I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash rental. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash rental to get an extra three months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash rental right now to learn more. Over the last decade, a brand new tradition has emerged. You've probably done it. I know I have. It's binge-watching, low-budget, made-for-TV holiday movies. The new season of Business Wars podcast from Wondery looks at how Christmas films started creating massive profits and how the battle to have the highest-rated Christmas movies became an intense Christmas tradition. In 2009, the Hallmark Channel aired constant holiday programming from Thanksgiving all the way through Christmas, and their ratings went through the roof. Competitor Lifetime took notice, and they started their own block of Christmas movies, and when Netflix started making Christmas movies, an all-out war started. Business Wars Christmas Movie Wars dives into the competition between Hallmark, Lifetime, and Netflix. While their films may be full of goodwill and cheer, the war for ratings is downright hostile. Listen to Business Wars Christmas Movie Wars on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Rental Income Podcast. Michael, let's start off talking about your portfolio. Can you tell me about your rentals? Sure. We have um, currently we have nineteen single families and one duplex. What type of neighborhood are they in? We generally find ourselves in C plus and B minus neighborhoods. I'd call it okay. 
And are do you like buying three bedrooms, two bedrooms? Like, what, how are the houses set up? We've got kind of a mix between um, three bedroom, you know, two bath to two bedroom, one bath, one and a half. It's it's probably about an equal split between those. We don't really have a a preference. It just happens to be whatever fits that neighborhood the best. Do you find that one type of setup works better for rentals or do they all rent pretty quickly? Uh, For us, they all rent really quickly. We can't seem to get them fast enough right now and um, get them renovated and turned over. So, and it doesn't seem to matter if it's a three bedroom, two bath ranch or a a two bedroom, one bath. They all seem to go pretty quickly. Awesome. Now you mentioned in the intro that, that you're fixing the properties up. So is your strategy to buy outdated houses and then do a full rehab on them? That is our general process. We we tend to find things that have been not touched in a long time. You know, we've, we've taken out a lot of shag carpet and a lot of pink tile out of kitchens and bathrooms. And so we tend to, yeah, find things that need, need quite a bit of updating, um, buy them and then really do a lot in the front end for renovations and infrastructure for those properties. We find that gives us the most value for our market. Let's talk about exactly what you're doing. So like say in the kitchen, so are you doing a full gut job on the kitchen? Typically, yes. Um, On occasion, we might find a kitchen that, you know, the cabinets are still in good shape. But in general, we're doing new cabinets, new floors, new counters, um, backsplash, usually new lighting, um, and all of the plumbing is always um, from scratch, basically, because a lot of it in our area is old galvanized. And so you end up having a lot more problems down the road if you just don't take the time to go ahead and replace it while you're doing the rest of the renovations. So it it sounds like you're basically redoing everything and it it doesn't sound like you're you're doing things on the cheap, like you're, you're really doing it right. Yeah, we... When we first started, we were trying to be a lot more budget conscious. But what we realized pretty quickly was when you buy, you know, maybe just do laminate countertops, it doesn't take long for one turnover tenant where they've, you know, melted a countertop. So we found that, you know, if you if you invest the money in, in granite, for example, or maybe you get a sale on quartz or one of those things, you can really save yourself a lot of turnover time and a lot of um, expense long term. But it does require you know, more investment up front. But mm-hmm. for us, our returns have been so much better by doing that, both better quality of tenant and a lot less maintenance requests. Are you doing stainless steel appliances too? We are. Everything is um, stainless. I tell people when I talk to them about rental property that I try to make it almost like a franchise. So it's always the same stainless appliances. It's always the same color granite. It's the same color uh, paint and backsplash tile, all of those things. Now, you're really going high end. And a lot of times, like a C minus B plus or B neighborhood, you don't need to go with stainless and, and granite. Uh, is that typical in the neighborhoods that you're buying in? Or are you making the properties nicer than your competition? I'm definitely making them nicer than the competition. and But we're very careful not to go too far so that we haven't, you know, spent more than, than the house would ever be, you know, you'd ever be able to recoup it. Um, but we definitely want to set ourselves apart. We want, we want to find really good tenants. And those, those finishes, 
that little bit of extra, you know, it's, you might only spend 15% total on a renovation more than you, you know, in our method, as opposed to, you know, kind of maybe more budget friendly method. But we found that the return is 20% or better on the, on the rent and a lot less turnover. Our, our tenant times are significantly better because there's not really a better property sometimes for those tenants to go to right. because we've given them everything they kind of ever want. Yeah, they, they've really got that wow factor when they walk in. Yeah, and from that standpoint, it's really, you know, it's we get more in rent than, you know, a competitive property. You know, it might be $100 to $250 more, um, and sometimes wow. even more than that. It just sort of depends on which one of those markets we're in. Now, what about the bathrooms? I, I assume that you're doing a, a gut job on the bathrooms, too. Yeah, we are. Um, I haven't found a tenant who really likes pink tile yet, but... <laughs> So we've, we've tried to avoid that. Uh, yeah, it's the same kind of thing we do. Everything's typically the same. It's, you know, subway tile, it's new, new flooring. And when we do the flooring, you know, we're typically doing tile floor because, you know, the bathrooms aren't very big in a lot of these properties. So, you know, you could put sheet vinyl in for maybe $50, but if you put in, you know, you find a good deal on ceramic tile, for example, you know, you might spend $200 or $250 with labor. And, and that's one of those detail spaces where it really does make a difference to the right. tenant and to the final appraisal of the property. The value sure. of the property is worth more when the fit and finish is better. What are you doing for the flooring in the rest of your house? I, I've got a lot of carpet in my properties and I'm working on getting rid of it. It, it just gets too expensive to to keep replacing it and, and to maintain it. Do you put carpet in or are you doing something else for your flooring? We are typically only doing laminate flooring throughout Smart. and we buy, and it's the same flooring throughout every property. We buy it in bulk because we're constantly working on a property. So we're buying plenty. We're getting a really good deal and yeah, we're, we're trying to avoid carpet at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a nightmare. I I'm so done with carpet now, what about when you when you buy the appliances? Are you buying appliances from the big box stores, Lowe's and Home Depot, or are you getting them from somewhere else? So typically what we did when we started, that's exactly what we did. You know, we kind of shop around and look for the best deal who whoever was one of whatever big box store was having the best sale. But now um, we went to a local um, a family owned business locally. And we, I sat down with the owner and we just talked about, well, you know, we, we plan to buy maybe six refrigerators and six stoves and six dishwashers this year. And next year it's probably going to be 10. And so I was able to get even better pricing than I could get on sale at a local big box store. So we're able to get stainless at really good rates. It's always the same. And then if there is a maintenance issue, you know, we've got a really good service provider because we provide them so much business. Right. And, th and that's been a really big win for us being able to do that. You know, I imagine the other benefit is with delivery. I know when I've had appliances delivered from from Lowe's and Home Depot, they, they just basically give you a day and then they'll call you the day before and give you a time frame. But there's no flexibility in, in when it's going to be delivered. You just kind of have to be available. With dealing with a local place, are you able to to maybe customize the schedule a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. It's you know we if we say hey we really need it in you know um, on Thursday at two o'clock they'll be there Thursday at two o'clock. Yeah, that's awesome. Really helps, and when you know because as we have all experienced, sometimes you're 
renovation projects don't go as smoothly as you want. And instead of Thursday at two o'clock, now you're, you know, I need it next Tuesday at right. one. Right. Yeah. And also, yeah, I personally, I just like supporting local businesses. So that, that's an extra little bonus to, to support the little guy. Um, now tell me about the technology. So in your rentals, you're using a lot of technology. Can you tell me what you're doing? Yeah. So we are trying to make the the homes as attractive as we can for um, people who really do want technology in their homes. And that's everything from smart thermostats to internet-based doorbells and smart lighting that they can control from their phones. Those are some of the other little extra things that we do. And you know, smart thermostats, I don't know about different parts of the country, but for us, our local utility providers typically provide a rebate for any smart thermostat. So we're, it's really no cost to me. So I get, you can get a smart thermostat for basically nothing. Um, and it is something that the tenants like. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that probably in five or 10 years, the, all those technologies, smart thermostats and all that, it's going to be standard. Every every house is going to have that in five or 10 years. But right now you kind of have a little bit of a wow factor to it. So it's a little bit of an expense, but I, I think you're, you're, you're just getting that, that extra little something that tenants are getting. So I, I, I think that's smart. Do you put that in your listing or do you just let people discover that when they see the property? We typically will list the, like a smart thermostat, for example, or we might just say smart lighting. Um, and then, but some of the other things that might be going on, we'll, we'll just kind of leave those unspoken. And then when they come in, it's, it's a little more wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So I, so all your rentals are the same inside. So I, I imagine that when you do maintenance, it's gotta be easy because you know, the, the parts that you're going to need to replace the property. It's not, uh, what, what, what kind of piping do we have in this property? Uh, okay. I've got to go, uh, get that exact part. You, you kind of know everything that you have in the house. So th- does that make your maintenance a lot easier? It really does, you know, because we typically have, you know, if it's a piece of flooring and a piece of flooring gets damaged, well, we've got plenty of flooring left over from, you know, the renovations and, it's always the same paint color. So there's never worry about, Oh, did we, what color did we use for that particular home? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the creating a set of standards and a process to, to manage it it has really dramatically lowered our maintenance cost annually um, for across all of our properties. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it really sounds like you're treating this like a business. This doesn't sound like a hobby. No, it is definitely a business for us. We we yeah. do our best to run it just like any other business I would run. And we focus on process and we try to treat our tenants as customers. We want them to be very happy and satisfied. And we're very picky about those tenants. So we, we want it to be a great relationship for, for both us and for them. Awesome. Well, let's talk about one of your deals to, to see if we can... Uh kind of dive in a little bit more to what you're doing. So tell me about one of your properties that this is a hoarder house that you bought. Tell me about this house. What was it like <laughs> when you bought it? Yeah. So we, we bought a hoarder house. Um, it was, it was quite a process. We, uh, we bought it for about 48,000. We put 60,000 in, uh, so we we're in for about 108,000. Um, which that renovation was significantly more than we would normally spend. However, in that particular case, because it was a hoarder house, 
we had many, many dumpsters to take out and we couldn't see the walls during the initial walkthrough. So we had some foundation work we ended up having to do. So we did spend quite a bit more, but it was in an actual A neighborhood. Um, and so once we were done, we got it appraised and it came in at 228 and it's currently rented for 1600 a month. Okay, so you're all in at 108 and it's rented for 1600. So you you know a lot of times we look at the 1% rule, so if something something if you were all in for $100,000, you'd want it to rent for 1000 a month, but you're doing a lot better than that. Like you're you're right around like one and a half. Um, so is that really kind of what you target? Like the one and a half percent rule? Yeah. For us, one and a half percent to 2% even on a lot of our properties is a much better return. And we, we see that on every one of our properties and it is because of the amount of time and, and investment we make up front. We, we know that difference matters and we see it in our, in our financials. So if someone was looking to buy in your market or even you, if you're looking to buy another property, could you meet the one and a half percent rule or two percent rule just looking for deals on the MLS? Or is the way that you're getting that by buying a a hoarder house and then fixing it up? Is that really how you're getting those returns? Um, That's one way. Um, The hoarder house is obviously an exception, but um, we do find deals uh, through the MLS. We're, we're not really looking at foreclosures and some of those REO things. We do tend to find deals. We just get very aggressive in our negotiating and we try to find, you know, sometimes off market properties and we're, we're trying to leverage technology to be able to move quickly. As everybody knows in this market right now, it's, mm-hmm. you have to act fast if you want to be able to acquire a property. Right. All right, so so then your your rent is sixteen hundred. How much is your mortgage payment on that property? So the mortgage is right around three hundred and seventy five dollars a month. Wow. So I so you're renting it at sixteen hundred. Your mortgage is three seventy five, and and you're managing everything yourself, right? That's correct. We are. Wow. So you've got some really good buffer there, and you don't really have much vacancy, and you don't really have a ton of maintenance because you've made the property so nice. Yeah. And again, I think maintenance sometimes is one of those things that, and I learned this the hard way, I'm sure like a lot of us have, that if it, it can really eat into your margins on the back end. And so that's why we really kind of shifted our business model to focus on upfront investment to reduce those maintenance costs and to drive profitability. Yep. That's smart. Now, how do you use any kind of software to manage everything? Uh, yeah, we are using an app to manage all of our maintenance requests and all of our the financials for um, rent receipts. So we don't take cash. We don't take checks. Everything is electronic transfer. Um, and then the same with a maintenance request. If someone has a maintenance request, uh, it goes through the app. They make it on the app and all the communication is handled that way. And that just, again, once it comes in, all I do is swipe it to the electrician or the plumber or the painter, whoever needs to address it, uh, they're notified immediately via email and text, and then they go take care of the problem. Awesome. What app is that? That's Tenant Cloud. Okay. Awesome. Now, there's another app that I, that I want to ask you about. Now, this is an app that that you you own a company called Ask Rick, and and you're a sponsor of the podcast. Um, 
I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with Askrick. Um, but for anyone that's not, can you tell us about Askrick and and how our listeners could use it? By the time you find a property, do your analysis, um, get a showing scheduled, do all of those things. You know, it's days usually, you know, could run into a week depending. And I wanted to be able to do that on the fly because I wanted to build scale, but I wanted to do it in a way that would allow me to know if it, if it was even worth me going to look at a property. So we built Asperic, which is rental income calculator. And that's really essentially what it was built on was to understand the cash flow, understand the investment, and easily be able to find and filter properties all over the country. Um, and as we start scaling our business, we wanted that we wanted that ability quickly. And we thought, well, maybe other people would like like that too. So it was born out of, you know, us wanting to scale our rental business in a way. And then we turned that into Ask Rick. Ask Rick is available in the app stores for both Apple and Android, or you can go to justaskrick.com. They have a free seven-day trial, so there is no risk at all. I would like to thank our sponsor for making this episode possible. It's Chaley Ridge from Ridge Lending Group. Chaley is a nationwide lender, and her specialty is helping investors finance rental properties. She has a ton of different loans, and she can find something customized to you for your situation. If you want to find out more or you want to set up a time to talk to Chaley personally, just go to RidgeLendingGroup.com. That's R-I-D-G-E, LendingGroup.com, NMLS42056. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast today. Make sure you subscribe or follow the show, and I will talk to you on the next episode. My name is Dan Lane, and this has been the Rental Income Podcast. Hi, I'm Carla Harris, Vice Chairman at Morgan Stanley and host of the award-winning podcast, Access and Opportunity. We're telling the stories of individuals working to drive change within their communities and sharing tangible examples of how ideas around equitable access and opportunity are being made real every day. So tune in, listen, and subscribe to Access and Opportunity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Over the last decade, a brand new tradition has emerged. You've probably done it. I know I have. It's binge-watching, low-budget, made-for-TV holiday movies. The new season of Business Wars podcast from Wondery looks at how Christmas films started creating massive profits and how the battle to have the highest-rated Christmas movies became an intense Christmas tradition. In 2009, the Hallmark Channel aired constant holiday programming from Thanksgiving all the way through Christmas, and their ratings went through the roof. Competitor Lifetime took notice, and they started their own block of Christmas movies. And when Netflix started making Christmas movies, an all-out war started. Business Wars Christmas Movie Wars dives into the competition between Hallmark, Lifetime, and Netflix. While their films may be full of goodwill and cheer... The war for ratings is downright hostile. Listen to Business Wars Christmas Movie Wars on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hi, I'm Carla Harris, Vice Chairman at Morgan Stanley and host of the award-winning podcast, Access and Opportunity. We're telling the stories of individuals working to drive change within their communities and sharing 
tangible examples of how ideas around equitable access and opportunity are being made real every day. So tune in, listen, and subscribe to Access and Opportunity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Carla Harris, Vice Chairman at Morgan Stanley and host of the award-winning podcast, Access and Opportunity. We're telling the stories of individuals working to drive change within their communities and sharing tangible examples of how ideas around equitable access and opportunity are being made real every day. So tune in, listen, and subscribe to Access and Opportunity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.